0: I want to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word to please open it to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We began making our way verse by verse through this letter, and now we find ourselves in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As you're turning there, I wanted to share with you an update and a prayer request regarding my daughter Emma. I praise God we are still seeing signs of improvement, small but steps of improvement. This past week, she has struggled a little bit more with just secretions and keeping her airway clear. We're not sure if it's due to the, the ozone, the heat. We're, we just we don't know why. Uh, but her O2 level has gone back and forth this week most every day. So please just pray that that airway will remain clear and uh, there will be no, no issues developed because of that. So thank you for your faithful prayers for Emma and for me and my family. As I said, a few weeks ago, we began a verse-by-verse study through this earliest letter. It's believed this was the very first letter Paul wrote in our earliest New Testament manuscript. Uh, And we find ourselves now in chapter 4 where Paul begins a section of ethics. What I mean by that is now he's teaching the church about how to live what they believe. Up till now, as Nathan pointed out last week, there's been this repetition of love. He loves this church. He's been separated from them. He longs to be with them. From what we read and what Paul wrote, this is a church that knows the truth and has been striving to live it. But now in chapters 4 and 5, it's really an applied section where Paul says, you're doing these things. Now remain vigilant to continue to do them, to grow in these areas. So with that said, follow with me as I read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, ...that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God... That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we pray with confidence this morning knowing that you are gracious and true. Knowing that your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. And knowing our dependency upon you. Father, lead us. Lead us that as we hear this message today. And as we have read your word, that our hearts would not be hardened to this truth. But that your word would transform us, that we might live in a holy manner, giving glory to you. Help us to do this, Father, for the sake of your kingdom and for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Two Sundays ago, Jody um, took the afternoon to go out for a walk and to run a few errands. Now, our schedule at home is usually this. We get Emma out of bed around 10 o'clock. She stays in her chair till around 2, and then we put her back into bed where she usually takes a nap. So after 2 o'clock, she was back in bed. Things were going well, and Emma was dozing off. So Jody left to go out for a walk, and I we have a, a recliner on wheels that she sets in, and when she's not using it, I make use of it. So we rolled the recliner next to her bed, and I sat down. And Jody went out to do her errands. About an hour and a half later, Jody comes back, and she comes into Emma's room. She takes a look around, and then she asks, "This, what are you doing?" Now I've been around long enough to know when your wife asks you, "What are you doing?", you have no idea what you're doing. So I reassess the situation. I'm in the recliner next to Emma. I've got a can of cashew nuts, and I've got a John Wayne movie on the TV, The Sons of Katie Elder. And I said, what's the matter with this? She said, you have become your father. (laughs) And she was right. I was in a recliner with Pete and the cashew nuts watching John Wayne on TV and didn't think a thing about it. I'd become my father without working at it or striving for it. I wish it were that easy for us to become like our Heavenly Father. I wish that we could become like God without thought or effort. But we are called to be like Him. There's no doubt about that. And I recognize the limits of this. What I mean is we are called to be strong. But we'll never be strong like God for He is omnipotent. We are called to grow in knowledge and to learn of God, but we will never be omniscient. And even when we are in heaven, God will still be all-knowing and we will still be limited. We are called to be holy. In our holiness, we recognize we will never be as holy as God. As Nathan referred to in the pastoral prayer this morning, the angels around the throne, we sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But although we might not be able to attain the fullness of who God is, it does not deny the fact that we are called to be holy. This is a common command in both Testaments. For example, in the book of Leviticus, the priests are commanded, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Now, as I said, the book of Leviticus is primarily written to priests. So we might think, well, what does that have to do with us? Until we realize in the book of 1 Peter, church, we are called to be a kingdom of priests. And that is why in the book of 1 Peter, he writes these words. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am am holy. We are to be a holy people. Now, holiness means to be set apart. The Bible teaches that when God calls us to salvation, we are set apart unto him. That's often known as positional holiness. But the holiness referred to in this passage and the holiness referred to in 1 Peter is ethical. It's a reference to how we are to live Our holiness entails what we do, what we say, and what we think. As followers of Jesus Christ, our actions are to reflect the holiness of God. And that takes effort. It doesn't come naturally to us. That's why the New Testament is full of instructions and admonitions on what it looks like to live a holy life. That's what this passage is about. In fact, as Paul seeks to encourage this church to build upon what they are already doing, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, he focuses on two areas. In verses 1 through 8, he deals with the issue of sexual purity. And then in verses 9 through 12, he talks about loving one another and what it looks like to be holy when you love one another. Now, there's more to holiness than just these two areas. But these were areas that were pertinent to the church at Thessalonica. and They are pertinent to us today. The world in which the early church was born was awash with sexual sin, engulfed in it. And the danger that the church at Thessalonica faced was apparently this. One, either they were disregarding the instructions about sexual purity and just accepting, well, this is just the way we are. Or they had accepted this teaching and had been striving to live lives above board that were sexually pure, but slowly, over time, had begun to slide back into sexual sin. That's why Paul in verses 1 and 2 emphasizes that he's asking and he's urging them to walk in a way that pleases God. The language is very strong in verse 1. We ask and we urge you in the Lord. If Paul were typing this today, he would have typed that in all caps and in bold. It's pleading. He is urging the believers and he is urging us who read this to walk in a way that pleases God. We must keep pleasing God first and foremost in our thinking. Brother Lawrence is a monk who wrote in the 1600s, almost 500 years ago, a book called Practicing the Presence of God. I still recommend it today. And he wrote these words. Let us think often that our only business in this life is to please God. No doubt you've heard the saying and maybe even live by it. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But have you ever thought about what it means if God is not happy? If God is not pleased? Sometimes I'm afraid we get the idea that because God is rich in love, He is content with everything that we do. The Bible says otherwise. Sometimes our actions please God. and Sometimes they don't. The scripture is given to us so that we might live lives that cause God to smile. So that we would feel his good pleasure. It calls us to stop and to think about our actions. Now, what Paul is about to give in means of instruction is nothing new. Look at verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That word instructions carries a weight with it. It's a word that is used in other Greek literature for commands that come from a general or a commanding officer. We recognize that there are different levels of instructions. Take, for example, at Christmas when your child opens that brand new toy that always, always, always has to be assembled. There are instructions with it. Well, we know what those instructions are for. They're to used as a coaster for you to put your coffee on while you figure out how to put the toy together. Those instructions, it eh, doesn't matter. But let me ask you, when a soldier receives instructions that come from a colonel or a general, is he free to disregard those instructions? He is bound by them. So with an incredible weight, God says through Paul, I've given you instructions, and Paul emphasizes this in verse 2, that through the Lord Jesus Christ, these are not instructions that we can disregard or be flippant about. These instructions come from the highest authority, the Lord Jesus. And these instructions teach us this, that a pleasing walk is one of sexual purity. That is the main point of verses 3 through 8. It revolves around holiness. Notice verse 3 begins with the idea of holiness. This is your sanctification. That word could be translated holiness. This is your holiness. And then he ends this paragraph in verses 7 and 8 with a reminder of holiness. In verse 7, God's not called us to impurity, but in holiness. And then he ends verse 8 by saying, Whoever disregards this is not disregarding man, they are disregarding God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He ends this by reminding us that God has given us the Holy Spirit. And if we claim to follow Christ, and that is a claim to say we have the Holy Spirit, but we are not striving to live in a holy manner, then our lives do not match our profession and something is wrong. The opposite of holiness is impurity. You see this distinction in verse 7. God has not called us to live in impurity. And the impurity that we are warned about in this passage is sexual immorality. In verse 3, it is clear what God's will is. We miss this at times because we only think of God's will in terms of vocation or decisions that we face. But unequivocally, Paul states that for every believer, God's will for you is this. That you live a life of sexual purity. The two words found in verse 3, sexual immorality, translate one Greek word. And tragically, it's a word that our culture, that Americans are all too familiar with. It is the word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography or porn. Now, pornea is a broad term for any form of sexual sin. And I would remind you that Jesus expanded the definition of sexual sin to include our thought life. It's more than just actions. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said that if you have looked upon a woman with lust, that is with fantasies or desires of being sexual intimate with her, you have committed adultery. The definition was expanded. Now that expanded definition of pornea and the Christian teaching about sexual purity was radical at the time Paul wrote it. In that time, premarital and extramarital relationships were not just tolerated, they were even encouraged. It was taken as a given that people would live lives of total sexual freedom as Paul wrote this. In fact, Demosthenes, one of the uh, ancient Greek statesmen and orators who are still well-known today for his teachings on rhetoric, wrote this. He said, quote, A wife is for legitimacy and providing a family. A mistress is for pleasure And a prostitute or slave is for one's daily needs, end quote. That was accepted as common. Paul wrote in a culture that was drowning in sexuality. And as the saying goes, everything old is new again. I don't have to give you illustration of how our culture is absolutely being destroyed by sexual immorality. We live in a culture that accepts pornography as a given. A culture that accepts that sexual immorality, just it's the way life is. In fact, the point is today that if we stand up for Christian truth regarding sexual ethics, we are considered odd or puritanical. Or even at the point where we are causing harm to society. In his book, This Is Our Time, Trevin Wax summarized the situation accurately when he said, In our world today, in our culture, sex is either everything or it is nothing. What Dr. Wax was saying is this. It's that for some people, sex is everything. It's your whole identity. To think of of living without it and living in self-control is one that would cause a person to say, well, you shouldn't do that. It is everything, and your identity is wrapped up in it. But for others, they are on the other end of the spectrum. They have bought into the lie that sex is just a physical, biological act, and therefore it means nothing. Because of that attitude, that's why the command in verse 3 to avoid sexual immorality, to abstain from it, stands in stark contrast to our world. Now, some may ask, why is this such a big deal to God? After all, we argue that, you know, if two consenting adults agree to do something, then so be it. But we must understand the issue of consent. That's not the question for believers. The issue is, what does God say? What consent does God give? That is the issue. Why is God concerned about sex? First of all, he created it. And he created it with a purpose, the purpose of procreation and the purpose of bonding a husband and a wife together. Sex is so much more than just the physical. It impacts a person emotionally and even spiritually. Neurologists tell us that in the sexual act, chemicals are released within the brain that create bonds between the two that are engaged in that physical act bonds that are there and remain. That's why it is intent only for marriage. God also cares because He created sex to be a blessing between a husband and his wife. But God also knows the brokenness that ensues when the gift of sex is misused and abused. Although the analogy may be overused, It communicates clearly. Sex can be like a fire. A fire in a fireplace is warm and inviting and beneficial. But a fire that is removed from that context and allowed to burn without control and oversight damages, destroys, and scars. And God weeps over the harm brought by those who manipulate and use others for their own gratification. And understand, He doesn't just weep. But as we will see in verse 6, he is an avenger of those that would use the gift of sex to harm others. I ask you to remember this morning that God gives life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So the words that we see in the scripture are meant to give us life. Living outside of those instructions rob us of life. So how can we live this command out? How can we do God's will? and abstain from sexual immorality? Well, the first is this. It's found in verses 4 through 6. A pleasing walk is one of self-control. Notice how he says in verse 4 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's self-control. Now, this goes contrary to a lot of thought that surrounds us today. Much of the thinking today says that if you have a desire You need to act upon that desire because to do otherwise, in other words, to repress a desire, could cause harm to your ego. But I would submit to you that it is giving freely to our desires, brings harm. Quite frankly, we must remember that the scripture teaches our desires come from hearts that are bent against God. And if we do anything we want, whenever we want, it will only lead to irreparable harm and destruction. So, verse 5 tells us to live in self-control. It's easy to forget that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because quite frankly, when we think of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, self-control usually doesn't make the top five because it's not fun to think about that. But look again at Galatians chapter 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Can I get a witness so far? That's good stuff. self control. A mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit, a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that you will practice self-control. There's no law against that. that, That's something that comes from the inside. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. That's self-control. They've killed it with its passions and its desires. So what does that look like? I know that what I'm about to say may seem simplistic, but I believe it is true nonetheless. If we are to abstain from sexual immorality, we must recognize our responsibility to walk in the Spirit and practice self-control in these areas. Let's start first with our eyes. It's been said that the eyes are the window to the soul. And usually that's used to communicate that you can look into somebody's eyes and see what's going on. But I would submit to you that cliche also means that the eyes let things into the soul. When I was growing up, there was a children's song that we would sing before worship. Be careful little hands what you do. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful adult hands what you do. Be careful, adult eyes, what you see. We need to take seriously what we look at. Job was a righteous man. God himself told Satan, I have no one on this earth like Job who is upright and blameless. In The 31st chapter of Job, as Job is defending his integrity before his accusers, he makes this statement, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I'm determined to practice self-control. How could I look at a young woman? And the implication there is clear. Job is saying, I have committed to practice self-control with what I look at. How could I look at a young woman lustfully? We need to practice the discipline of looking away. Because often we justify, well, I'm watching TV. I can't help what comes on a commercial. True, you have no control over programming other than to turn the TV off you could also look away to say, I'm not going to let my eyes dwell on that. I will look away from anything that may be provocative because I want to guard my heart and mind that I may do the will of God and abstain from sexual immorality. Make that covenant with your eyes. Also, self-control deals with what we say. It's out of the heart that we speak. Now, you may be thinking, well, what in the world... Does what we say have to do with abstaining from sexual immorality? What we say and what we repeat often becomes accepted as truth by us. In the book of Ephesians, we are given a warning. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. A believer should never be sharing jokes that have double entendres within them, that have veiled sexual meanings. Why? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And if we are seeking to be pure, our language should always be above board and uplifting without a hint of flirtation or sexual immorality. And if you think, Pastor, you're going overboard on this, I hope I am. Because we must take these commands seriously. Another area that we must take this serious, and this really is the root of it all, is our heart, our desires, and our thinking. This is spiritual warfare, people. Now, I believe in the demonic realm. I do. But I believe the greatest spiritual warfare a believer faces is what takes place in their own heart when they feel temptation to think and to act upon what they're thinking. We must engage in the discipline, the daily, the hourly, the minute-by-minute discipline of training our thinking to think on God for example Philippians 4:8 says this brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just what is pure lovely commendable if there's anything of excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things do you engage in directing your thoughts where they need to be Sometimes that's coming to our senses and saying, whoa, whoa, why am I thinking that? Stop it. And I would even go so far as to say, if we are serious about this, which we must be, it means memorizing Scripture, using the Word of God to combat thoughts that would lead us away from God, singing hymns of the faith, songs that direct our thinking back to God. That's the battle we engage in. And we can sing all day long about shining, about standing for Jesus, but until we take it to heart and strive for that daily, those words mean nothing we must engage in this battle the seriousness of this is shown in what Paul writes next in verse 5 don't live in the passion lust or lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God in fact that's a warning that says if we disregard this and say do whatever you want we're living like those who do not know God now verse 6 I must admit is a bit puzzling but there is no way around the serious nature of this sin when you read verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter that seems odd some say he's no longer talking about sexual sin but that doesn't fit the context in fact this seems to refer to what he has said in verses 3 through 5 I believe the best way to understand this is to understand the context of which Paul was writing A few moments ago, I said that this culture that Paul wrote was awash in sexual sin. The worship of the false gods in Thessalonica, in Greece, in Corinth often involved the grossest acts of sexual immorality. They would come to worship this pagan god, and part of it were these gross rites of physical intimacy. Paul recognizes the danger. That you come from that background and now you're a believer and you're in a church. It could be very tempting to start trying to sneak those practices into the body of believers. And Paul is saying no. He is also, I think, by bringing in the word brother, that we should not in any way do anything that would harm our brothers and sisters in Christ in what we do, say, or think, especially in this matter of sexual immorality. We need to be on guard because the language of verse 6 is strong. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. I pause because we shouldn't read quickly over that language. God will avenge sexual sin. Let me be clear as I can be. God takes sexual sin seriously. I have no doubt that within a congregation the size of Trinity and those who are watching online that there are those who have been sinned against sexually. It is right to seek justice and often one of the paradigms that happens to a person has been a victim is they feel like it was their fault If you have been wronged against, it is not your fault. The person who did it is responsible and should be held responsible. And because of that, seek justice if you can at all. But also recognize there may be instances where justice cannot be sought. So that is why we hold on to the truth that God is never mocked. Those who have perpetuated sexual sin against others will answer to God. He is an avenger. He will stand up for those who have been wronged. That is why this call to sexual purity cannot be ignored. It cannot be justified. That's why he says God's not called us to walk in impurity but in holiness. This message has a weightiness to it. I recognize that. We are called not to disregard this. But I do want to conclude this with a word of hope. Because the reality is that all of us are sexually broken in some way. All of us. Every person. Our God is a redeemer. And he can redeem us from the shame of sin. Earlier I used the analogy of fire. I would remind you that what happens to a forest that has been burned with fire? For a while, it is scarred, black, and ugly. But what happens over time? Restoration occurs. Healing occurs. Where grass was destroyed, it begins to grow again. That is a picture of the redeeming grace of God from those that have been hurt. It begins, though, with coming to Him. The only way, I believe, to battle sexual sin is to bring it to the light. More than any other sin, it thrives in darkness. I recognize because of the nature of it, the temptation to keep it quiet is very real. That's why this morning I'll be down at the front, and if you need to come and talk with me, I'll be here. But even after the service is over, I'll be available. Pastor Nathan is available if you need to talk to pray. So I ask you now to bow your heads with me. As I said some weeks ago, we are going to be doing invitation a little bit differently. If the Lord is moving in your heart to come, I'll be here at the front, and I'll find out what the need is, and then I'll ask you just to, to wait. Wait on the front row, and then when we are done, We will take the time to really talk and pray together. I also remind you that the the kneeling benches that are located on either side of the communion table are open to be used during this time. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts. You know the brokenness that we have because of our sin and at times because of the sins of others. And this morning, oh Lord, we pray for healing. Father, you know our hearts. You know where we have accepted and become comfortable with sin, particularly sexual sin. So we ask you this morning, Father, to bring healing to us. To remind us of the call to holiness and the seriousness of this issue. And remind us of your grace. Restore us, O oh God, in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.